just below the hill known as Golgotha and Calvary, just outside of Jerusalem, there's a dark incline known as Jeremiah's Grotto. It's suggested as the location where the prophet sat and observed the ruins of the city while writing these uh, lamentations. Uh, We can't know for sure, but if it's true, it's appropriate that Jeremiah's Grotto is located so closely to the spot where Jesus Christ died on the cross some 600 years later. He too, you'll remember, wept over Jerusalem's destruction, knowing what would befall the Jews for having rejected God's offer of the kingdom by despising their one true king. Having warned Judah for four decades of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, Jeremiah put his tears into words once more in a series of five laments in these five chapters. Although there are other examples of this literary style in the Bible, this book is the only one wholly written as a lament. Now, the Hebrew title of the book comes from the first words of chapters 1, 2, and 4, eka, meaning ah, how. Another Hebrew word, genoth, has been used, meaning elegies or lamentations. The Greek title is thronoi, dirges or laments, and the Latin is threni, tears or lamentations. I think you get the idea, it's going to be sad. Uh, it, there's not, not too much humor uh, in this book. Three themes reappear and run through Jeremiah's five laments. There is mourning over Jerusalem's destruction and desolation. There is confession of sin and the acknowledgement of God's judgment that it was righteous and deserved. And then we see the wealth of God's mercies and the certain hope of Israel's restoration. We would pick as the book's key verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Uh, Mostly we're familiar with these. Uh, We probably don't realize they come out of lamentations, but we love them. Uh, Though uh, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We've chosen as a title for the series, New Every Morning, spelling morning with a U, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The Lord's faithfulness and mercies are indeed new each day, every morning, but they are especially real to us each time we find cause for mourning, every time we're uh, faced with sorrow and tears. Chapter 1 breaks very obviously into two movements. The first in verses 1 through 11 is a lamentation by Jeremiah. And then in verses 12 through 22, Jerusalem is personified as lamenting back. And so let's read verses 1 through 7. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. 
And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy, with no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. And so Jeremiah's mind and heart are flooded with images that inspire sorrow. Looking at the, uh, the city and its wreckage, we don't know how soon after the destruction of Jerusalem he was writing this, whether it was moments or months, uh, but he has all of these different images, all of these different illustrations or metaphors, we would say, to try and convey uh, the sorrow of that moment. Uh, he compares, for example, Jerusalem and its citizens to a widow. Of course, in that culture, uh, if you were a widow, you were absolutely destitute. Uh, you know, it was a, obviously a patriarchal culture, and uh, widows, uh, you know, had to be taken care of. It, it's a picture of uh, being destitute. Then he compared them to a slave. Uh, then he compares Jerusalem to an abandoned lover and then to a betrayed friend. Uh, and really there's half a dozen other uh, illustrations in there, all of them as bleak as can possibly be. Talks about the priests, so important and so active in bridging the gap between man and God. They have no place to work. Uh, they've they're been put out of business, as it were, because the temple has been destroyed. Innocent young virgins, indeed all the innocent children, suffer for the sins of their parents and their leaders. Uh, it's, it's a terrible destruction. Now that the destruction has come, the people look upon what they've lost. The cause was given in verse 5, the multitude of her transgressions. It's expanded upon beginning with verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They've given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O oh Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. It says here they had sinned gravely. We've seen in Sunday morning studies in Jeremiah how they constructed idols and put them right in the temple itself, how they worshiped the foreign gods by participating in immoral sexual rituals, and how they sacrificed their own infant children to death, uh, none of which obviously was required or, or even thought of by the Lord, but they had become influenced by the world. Now, I want to focus on the words in verse 9 she did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. There are at least two ways to think of this word destiny in this, in this context. One way is that the people did not think ahead to see the consequences of their behavior. They didn't look to see what their destiny would be down the road uh, should they make these particular choices. Even in light of the warnings in God's written word, and through God's spoken words, through the prophets, the people did not think ahead to the consequences. 
Uh, you know, you don't even need Jeremiah or Ezekiel or these other contemporary prophets to be warning the children of Israel. Uh, they had plenty of warning in the book of Deuteronomy especially, but in all of the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and, and in all of their uh, history prior to this that was written, um, lots of warning to, to uh, you know, that they'd be blessed for obedience, but that they would be judged and cursed for their disobedience. But then God said, I'm, nevertheless, uh, I'm going to send you prophets. And Jeremiah, for example, 40 years of faithful ministry of the word, always warning the people of judgment to come, uh, and yet they refused to heed the written or the spoken word and to think of their future destiny. Why did they ignore the consequences? Well, something Jeremiah said in his other book comes to mind. Uh, you might remember that as he would stand outside the temple as people were coming in and he would warn and give these messages of the judgment to come, uh, the people would turn to him and say, perhaps with a gesture, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, in other words, they thought of the temple as sort of a good luck charm that would protect them from any real harm. Uh, in their minds, they could push the limits. They could go beyond God's boundaries because they had his temple. They were the ones that lived in the surrounding of that temple, in the shadow of that temple. They'd watched while God allowed the northern kingdom of Israel to be overrun and destroyed by the Assyrians. Uh, you know the history of Israel after the death of Solomon. Uh, his son was a bonehead uh, made some wrong decisions, and so the kingdom split in two. Ten tribes to the north called Israel, two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, called Judah. And so you had the divided kingdom stage. And about 100 years, 200 years or so prior to the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the uh, citizens of Judah had watched the Assyrians come in and, and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for very similar sins. Uh, and perhaps, you know, when you consider that the northern kingdom didn't really have the temple to sin in and against, they might not have even been sinning as badly as the citizens of Judah. Uh, and they had watched this happen, and they still continued to sin against God's word, uh, both written and spoken. Uh, but I think they would say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, the northern kingdom didn't have the temple, did they? Too bad for them, the Jews and Judah thought. Nothing like that would ever happen here uh, because God, they believed, was jealous for his glory and that he would defend his glory, defend himself as it were, and uh, they would just reap the benefit of that. Uh, of course, uh, there's a, an amazing passage in Ezekiel that we studied a while back where it takes quite a while, but the, the glory of the Lord actually departs from the temple at one point, and it just moves through the city until it's gone. And, and uh, I don't see any reason not to think that as a visual, uh, because you remember in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as a pillar of fire by night and as a cloud by day. His, his glory was actually visible and visible there in the temple. And so, uh, but for however you want to visualize it, God said, that, that's it, I'm, my glory is going to depart. And then the Babylonians came in, of course, and did destroy the city and the temple. Now, destiny can also refer to their ultimate purpose 
as a nation. So, so it could be that he's saying, you know, you, you don't think of your destiny, you don't think about what's going to happen eventually, uh, you know, in terms of being judged, but you're also not thinking of your destiny in terms of your purpose as a nation, which is to bring the knowledge of God to the world. They were to bring the knowledge of God to the surrounding nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples as they were the people who would bring the Messiah to the world, the Savior of the world. And instead of considering that awesome mission, uh, their influence upon the world, the, the introduction of God to the world, they allowed the world to influence them. They became enamored of the world. Their collapse, it says, was awesome. I, I find that kind of modern language, don't you? Uh, the, you know, they didn't think of their destiny, and their collapse was awesome because they never thought it would come. It, it was an awesome thing. It was like, what just happened? You ever have a moment like that where you think, what just happened? Uh, we were, uh, when was it, last Friday night, we had a couple that came to our Valentine's banquet who had been at Subway uh, earlier in the day and, and just like we're six inches away from being run over by that truck that backed into Subway. And, and your reaction is, you know, I'm eating a sub, uh, I'm having a meatball sandwich. What just happened? You know, in, in a sense, it's awesome. And not in a good sense, but, you know, and, and that's the, it's like, wow, what, who are these Babylonian soldiers that are coming over the wall and through the wall and in the temple? Uh, no, Gentile, don't they know Gentiles aren't allowed in the temple? What are they doing there? Oh, wait, they're burning it. They're looting it. They're destroying it. God wasn't messing around. Though he was slow to bring judgment, the destruction came as he forewarned. We should think more about our destiny in both these ways as believers in Jesus Christ. Obviously, we too are commissioned to bring the knowledge of God to the world. People are perishing. There's, there's you know, different ways of, of saying the same thing and looking at it. Uh, you know, so when I say we have the great commission and we're to bring the gospel to the whole world and all that, that's, that's true. But what we really mean by that is that every day people are perishing eternally because they lack the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's, a, there's an urgency to it. It's as if, you know, our, you know we're on uh, pagers and, and they're always going off like with 911 emergencies because we're surrounded by people who need the gospel. And we need to have the leading of the Spirit, be sensitive to the Spirit. We need to be available to the Spirit to know how and when and who to share with because God is reaching out to these people. Uh, if they're not perishing, maybe they'll, you know, maybe tomorrow you'll go to work and most of everybody that you work with will still be there. They won't have perished during the night. You'll have another opportunity. But if they're not perishing, they're mostly suffering, whether they'll admit it or not. And if they're not currently suffering, they will be suffering soon. Uh, and we're the ones that have the words of eternal life. We have keys that unlock the kingdom of God. It always fascinates me that we can look at a person and with absolute confidence, uh, standing on the, on the sure promises of the word of God, on the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection power, we can look people in the eye and, and be absolutely 100% sure that Jesus Christ has forgiven their sins. If they will cry out to him, they can be saved. 
Do you ever, I mean, when you do get to share with people, do you ever, do you ever doubt that, that what you're saying is true? You never do. You just, you know, because you've been saved. You're telling people, it, think of how amazing that is, that you as a human being, just like them, are able to say beyond the shadow of a doubt, right now, if you'll receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins will be forgiven. Your past, present, and future sins, you'll inherit eternal life. You, you have a key, the gospel, that unlocks a kingdom that is uh, of tremendous benefit to them. Jesus is the only king, and it's the only kingdom that can accomplish that in their lives. And and we're the agents that can uh, tell these people that old things will pass away and all things will become new. And when they say, well, how do you know, uh, besides all of the intellectual arguments and all of the uh, apologetic arguments, we say, because it happened to us, because it happened to me. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven, and I experience the Lord's light and love in my life. We should not have time to sin in light of our mission and the seriousness of reaching folks who need what only we can share. I, I, I got a kick out of that when I wrote that, but it's really true. If I really, really, I don't want to put a burden on anybody, even myself, you know, I don't want to get into a thing about, you know, making you feel like, uh, you know, if you're not staying up 24 hours a day sharing the gospel that you're blowing it. But when you really think about the mission we have and the fact that people are perishing, we don't have time to sin. Because if, you, if I'm sitting around thinking, okay, I just got done with Bible study. Uh, you know, uh, I don't have to go back to church until Sunday. What am I going to do for the next three or four days? Uh, maybe I'll sin a little bit. Because, you know, I'm in between spiritual things. Maybe I, if, if you've got time to sin, then we'll find something for you to do. There's a mission for you somewhere. You can go out with, and visit the homeless, or you can go to a convalescent home. I mean, there's a million things you could do. I mean, we really, literally, if you think about it, you think, you know, uh, there's people in my family, there's people in my neighborhood, there's people at my job, there's people everywhere I go that still haven't heard the gospel, either from me or from anybody else. I really don't have time to get involved in that sin right now. If I want to do that, I ought to do this because this really takes priority. On a more gut level, sin always has consequences anyway. It offers excitement and pleasure for a season, but it always, always leaves you a widow or a slave or an abandoned lover or a betrayed friend. In other words, you know, just as Jeremiah sat outside of Jerusalem, we can sit outside the lives of other believers that we've seen over the years, and sometimes it's been our life, and others have looked on us and, see, and say, man, you, <laughs> you're, you're no better off than a widow at this point. I mean, you're a, you become a slave to sin. You've been abandoned by your lover, by that thing that you thought you were in love with and was bringing you so much pleasure. And not only that, it harms those who are innocent around you. When Jeremiah was talking about Jerusalem and, and the sin of the uh, people of Judah, he said the, the young virgins and the innocent children were affected by it, and that's the same with us. Innocent, you know, I always think that if I sin, I'm just going to affect me, and that's bad enough, but uh, it can be contained. But it, it, it's never contained. It always spills out into the lives of other people, innocent people in that sense, because they weren't part of the decision uh, to go into it. If you have time to sin, you don't understand the times. 
uh, that we live in, the end times and the fact that the Lord is coming. And so let that motivate you and encourage you to just be busy. Uh, put your hand to the plow and plow straight. And uh, if you need something to do, we'll find something for you to do. Now, the last half of the chapter has Jerusalem personified, speaking about her own fate. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. As we read this, you saw the repetition of the Lord, the Lord. He did this. One thing is certain, God now had their full attention. He was on their lips and on their minds. Question, did God really have to go that far to get their full attention? And the answer, of course, is yes, he had to go that far and no farther from our perspective, it can seem God allows things that are extreme. Yeah, you look at the world, things that are happening in the world, and, uh, you know, sometimes the word extreme is a mild way of putting it. I mean, you know, there, there are many uh, awesome, amazing, terrifying things that happen in the world, and it always seems that God, uh, it sometimes seems that God allows things that are extreme. But God is never the person who finally loses his temper and then lashes out. So I think sometimes we feel like, you know, that this is that kind of a situation where God says, I'm going I'm to, you know, have to discipline, you have to discipline, and all of a sudden, you know, everything just breaks loose and the Babylonians come and it gets out of control. God's punishments are always measured and they are perfect. They never go beyond what is necessary. Judah was overrun, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was burned, the people were taken captive because nothing short of that would return them to their spiritual center. That was the real difficulty. Coming this Sunday in Jeremiah, if we get there, um, <clears throat> Jeremiah is rebuking the people and they just get right in his face and they say, we don't care. We're going to Egypt. We're going to hang out in Egypt. We defy God. They're, it's an extremely defiant group. And, and the Lord says, well, then I'm going to wipe you all out except for a small remnant that is going to escape the sword and come back to Judah. And so, you know, you think, wow, God, are you going too far? And, and it's because we don't understand the hardness and the wickedness of the human heart. God says, how about I give you my word and you, you, know, uh, you can have land flowing with milk and honey and all that you want if you just obey me. Yeah, we're not going to do that. All right, I'm going to send you prophet after prophet after prophet. Yeah, we don't care about those guys. 
All right, here's a famine for you. Here's a drought for you. Here's some pestilence. Here's some disease. How's that? We don't care. We're going to set up more idols in the temple here. Uh, and God keeps going with this. Then he brings armies. And, and, and they say, okay, well, that's, that's no big deal to us. And, and then he finally destroys the entire city. And he says, now, will you listen to me? The city is destroyed. The temple is burned. Most of you have been taken captive to Babylon. How, are you going to listen to me now? No, we're going to Egypt where we can defy you from a distance. And so the answer is God being extreme is no. Because at any point along that chain, he'll, re, he'll change his mind, as it were. He'll relent in response to their repentance. Jeremiah is the one who says, if a nation repents, then I will change the way I deal with them. And so God always goes as far as he has to go and no further. And I mentioned this on a Sunday morning, but imagine God cannot let Israel go her own way completely. He has to discipline her. He has to bring her back to her senses. They have to come back to the land because they are going to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And, and so this is, a, this is pretty important stuff. He can't just wipe them out and start all over again. Uh, and, and so God does what he has to do and no more. Verse 18, the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all peoples and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Allow me to pick out a few phrases and string them together from that section. The Lord is righteous. Hear now all peoples. Do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. And so we see there that they had now a testimony that the Lord was righteous, a testimony to tell other nations and peoples with the warning that God's long-suffering with sin will one day end and he must judge them. God would use them in their repentance to show his coming judgment upon all nations for their sins, but also his mercy upon those who would repent at their example. Reminds me of King David's attitude about God's punishment after he'd sinned. We read in Psalm 51, 10, and 11, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted to you. David, after he had sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband hidden his sin for a long time, comes back to the Lord, and the conclusion that he has is that now I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David, uh, what, what a joy to see uh, what God can do, the, the full restoration. Sure, consequences in David's life. No one ever said there wouldn't be consequences to sin, 
But David is fully restored spiritually and goes on to minister for the Lord. If you ever find yourself mourning over your sin in a place where your collapse is awesome, where people could sit outside of you, as it were, and watch you and just think, weren't you concerned about your destiny? Didn't you know where this would lead? And didn't you care about others around you? Your collapse is just awesome. God will restore you. You will again minister to folks looking on. They'll understand God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. You will reveal to them that his mercies are indeed new every morning and in each time of mourning. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.